welcome to Inside COP26 with me, Sophie Schnapp, on Clyde Built Radio. Inside COP26 is a daily broadcast from the heart of the pivotal climate summit COP26. Each day, we'll be providing you with digestible snippets of the goings-on around COP, from unpicking the politics from inside the blue zone, where the climate negotiations take place, to the underground and inspirational fringe events around the city of Glasgow. Alongside my co-hosts, Tori Choi, Love Sager, Sally Milhook and Hayden Thorpe, we will be talking to scientists, activists, artists, musicians and more to be your eyes and ears inside and on the fringe of COP26. Our intro music is a track called Losing My Head by Hot Chip. Losing My Head was donated to Earth Percent, a charity who is partnering with our show inside COP26. The musical intervals of the show is a song called Dawn Chorus by a musical visionary, Osmo Sheldrake. Hello. Hi. Lovely to meet you. It's great to speak with you. Yeah. Can you tell me your name, please, and what you're up to? Sure. My name is Seema Joshi. I'm the director of campaigns at the campaigning organization Global Witness. And essentially, Global Witness, essentially, we are campaigning, uh, exposing, uh, doing investigations, uh, really uh, focusing on abusive actors and financial flows that are driving the climate breakdown. Wow. So it's just it's so impressive to meet people that are doing things for the greater good, right? Yeah, that we, we definitely want to see impact. Mm. You know, that's, that's really why we've come to the COP this week. Um, we had a pretty good team out uh, doing the best actually we could as a team to really see that there weren't just empty statements that were being made, whether it's on the fossil fuels or the methane or the deforestation. Uh, if these statements are made, we want them to have impact. We want them to translate into concrete action at the national level, um, which often requires regulation, the really hard stuff, you know, so we can actually get movement in this space. Um, you know, we also have been really working alongside a lot of indigenous communities and youth activists who have, to be honest, have expressed to us they're disappointed at how the COP has played out. They felt felt outside the discussions, which is, which is, you can understand on some level, there has to be government, you know, level discussions, but not, you know, they don't have the same accessibility. And that's very clear. I mean, Global Witness yesterday issued a report, which going to their participants list, 503 fossil fuel lobbyists um, are delegates at the COP. And basically, as a country, they would be the largest country delegation. Yeah, over Brazil. Exactly. So you can see the the power and the access that Mm. fossil fuel lobbyists have to these discussions. And that dwarfs Indigenous people's delegations, but also, you know, (laughs) those nation states that are most affected by the climate crisis today. So, um, yeah. We need, we need to, you know, it's not over. Like, the, the COP is just the forum where the governments are meeting. It's good we got some declarations, but we are planning to really continue to push hard uh, after the COP. So the, um, I've got a few points, but the first one is, like, the all of these new actions and promises mm-hmm. that they've brought out on reforestation, mm-hmm. on methane, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how... We we know that an action isn't um, a target isn't essentially going to do anything, right? So it's a promise. 
how do we what do we want to see for it for them to be implemented we want we want mandates within nations subsidies what else can you tell us about what we need from that yeah it's such a great question uh because this is how we get lost i think in mm. in, the, in the high level statements mm. um what we don't want to see very clearly are any more voluntary commitments by companies because essentially this is what we've seen in the past cops for example in relation to fossil fuels but also big agriculture uh, financial institutions so even with deforestation for example we are very clear that uh, the financial sector big banks are uh, funding quite significantly companies such as beef companies soy palm oil that are that have been documented to be linked to deforestation mm. in tropical hotspot areas uh, i mean our call is very much that uh, we've we've proven through our own investigations that you know these financial banks they already have voluntary statements saying that they're not going to fund deforestation yet we've proven they are and they can will can always continue to do so unless there's basically strong robust regulation uh, that they have to take very strong steps to ensure that they are not in fact financing deforestation so so for us this is a practical and achievable regulation that can be levied against the financial sector and and for we believe that will lead a pretty lead to a pretty significant change and for countries like the UK we are in fact it's we're importing right really largely importing through these supply chains uh, and are the banks are it's a big financial center in the UK so it really could be quite impressive and so that's just one example where we need to see that you know it really translates into something that's quite hard and robust mm. and we're out of time i mean that's the bottom line mm. My the biggest concern we have is that we sit and we heard it actually earlier this week. You know, we will have principles and there'll be you know voluntary commitments by financial institutions. This has got to stop. Yeah. <laughs> it's nothing new. We cannot have business as usual or business the way that business wants to do it. It just it doesn't work, and this mm. is actually what's been destroying the planet. I mean, for the fossil fuel um, sector and fossil gas, for example, the methane announcements you know someone referred to me it to me as the low hanging fruit of mm. the conversations um so yeah great to see some recognition and some again some safe statements but you know we have key countries that are missing but also key industries like for example fossil gas it's such a significant methane producer and of course we have agriculture uh we haven't got you know a tangible discussion as to how actually you know the point is is that if we want to stay within 1.5 degrees celsius we know what the um you know the ipcc has told us that the climate effects we're feeling are irreversible we know that you know international energy agency is saying that actually we should stop fossil fuel production expansion i mean th- these things should be reiterated and brought in the main discussion to make it very clear that we need to focus on stopping emissions now it's absolutely bonkers that it's not on the table and it's not being discussed isn't <laughs> it's it? absolutely bonkers instead so many so much conversation around carbon capture storage capturing something in the future you know which you know which is crazy because you know when you speak to uh delegates you know from you know Kenya we spoke to a youth activist speaking about how she works with the Maasai and the Maasai are having more drought more poverty uh and really being put in some really difficult situations where um you know their daughters are being married very young for example so they leave the family you know so they can get some money in exchange is really horrific mm-hmm. right and we hear talking about like women and um you know are things getting better for w- women 
the climate crisis is so directly affecting women, right? Because it causes poverty, right? And we're seeing it in Kenya, we see it in the Philippines, we're seeing it, you know, um, um, Madagascar has like a drought, a climate-driven drought. And what Mm. happens in these situations is that women, young girls are the ones that are affected first. Um, So that is not, that for me, that is the urgency of the now. Yeah. You know, we talk about the this, you know, catastrophic moment in 2050, but it is now, it's happening now. And the actions to cut emissions needs to happen now. So there's two, we can't focus on the carbon capture storage, which is a lofty ambition. Um, and also we'll just make profits for some company down the line. You know, uh, net zero policies. You know, I was on a, in a discussion yesterday we really can't have, we need to really ensure there's no greenwash around these net zero policies. And again, um, that's really about pushing for really robust assessments, monitoring, verification, control of what these net zero policies look like. And for fossil fuel companies, big agriculture, they just need to, they need to change the way they do business. Yeah. They need to stop emissions. Yeah. Um, that's it. We need, I've, I've been saying to people, we need a global greenwashing auditor. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) Why have we not got that? We do, with real power, right? With real power and... Climate justice at the forefront and women at the forefront and in, you know, all of these communities that are actually being targeted and lost and damaged at the forefront. Yes, exactly. Mm. I feel like, uh, you know, the sense I've really gotten while I've been up here in Glasgow and and I really love the city and people are very conversational, which is really nice. And I really feel people are so ahead of the governments. Mm -hmm. There's been this complete... I, I feel like change and the sense of urgency, people want urgent, they want change. They don't want their children or their grandchildren to suffer. You know, they don't want to suffer. And it's just, and I think it's almost become, it's illogical. People mm. don't understand why aren't the governments doing what they need to do now? We it, I mean, the Antarctic <laughs> ice sheet's literally falling away. How much more do you what want? What more like, do you need? Like, just, there's so yeah. much scientific proof. Yeah. And we know that it's the fossil fuel industry because of their denialism of the 1970s, 80s, and now it's delayism is, is now the, their tactic of the day. We know, we can see what it is. I heard this one that's um, delay is the new denial. That's, I completely agree, yeah. right? And it's just, it's shocking that we these conversations are still allowed to happen and if not in the main they don't happen in the main session necessarily but in the hallways and we really need accountability just at all levels um yeah i mean so i really feel (laughs) i feel that um uh you know as 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 people we i was having a conversation earlier today where you know it's like but how do we do it how do we get our governments to be act accountable and meet our needs and i really really strongly feel like climate can is should not be it's not a political issue you know climate is uh, climate justice addressing the climate crisis this is a health issue it needs to be prioritized as a health and well-being issue not just that though there are so many other multiple benefits of actually starting to look out for the for the environment yeah. environmental policies that's, yeah health well-being value shift yes just but apolitical so yeah. we shouldn't it shouldn't matter if the conservatives are in power mm. or or I don't know, whoever mm. because this is the, this is the issue you know it's a fundamental societal issue um, so there's a lot of work to be done there's no shortage of work, which is like someone else. <laughs> this is the thing. But I think it's good to be honest with where we're at. Mm. 
I still have hope. I mean, that we all need to have hope. And, um, you know, there are things we've seen in the last two years which we never thought we'd see. You know, that was to the negative. And I think moving forward, perhaps there's stuff in the next two years that we will see which will shock us because it's so damn good. Yeah. Here's to that positivity. Thank you so much. Hello. Hello, hi. I'm, how are you? I'm okay. Can you tell me your name, please? I'm called Judy Moretti. And I've just witnessed you on a panel at um, a She Climate event, and it was quite powerful, particularly the final bits of words. Oh. So can you just tell me what you were talking about and let listeners know why, you, why we're here and what we're talking about? Um, we're just talking about how can we use the law to improve or protect and nature the environment and biodiversity. And so my conversation was um, my activities and uh, basically how we can, we can connect the people, the communities with the law and the right. implementers with the law. And how can we come up with a specific line for which we can say maybe it's the it's a thin line. Let me say, yeah, it's a thin line. So how can we connect everyone? And so my, my opinion is that we need lots of education and awareness to the communities. And that, let them interact with the law in a way that they're able to, to, to know where they stand in the law. And if you're imposing laws, it should not be so punitive that it, it, it suffocates them in a point that they're not even able to, to live according to the law because of the way the law has been structured. You need to take us a step back because the listeners don't know what the law that you're talking about is. So, um, A, I also, um, yeah, so... What do you mean by the law, and what do you, and, and where are we talking about, and what's the context? Okay, when you talk about the law, um, when we make the laws, when the lawmakers make the law, it's either to to prevent to prevent a specific thing to be done, yeah. or to make sure something is done. Yeah. In our context, we talk about the conservation area or arena in the communities. The communities use the environment or nature as the means. Their means, not a means to an end, but that's the only means for their okay? own use. Like yeah, for they, their own yeah, use. Yeah, yeah. And so with this, they may be able to. Maybe they'll need the the tree to cut the tree to just make a simple meal, mm. or they maybe maybe take some little bit of bush meat and just eat. But then the law is there to make sure people do not do that. Mm. And so you might find uh, an old lady with just like a specific rock or a not rock like a like a branch, mm. and then they they they're, they're being put up fine or maybe around. Uh, Ten thousand US dollars just because they were found with firewood. So where can we create the balance? And you remember we're supposed to be imposing laws to to reduce transitional mm. crime or to reduce um, poachers or people who uh, destroy the the fi- the forest for for their economic gain. Yeah. But this community person is only doing it for his own for their own sustenance. So where exactly are we supposed to draw the line? And how can we use the law? to positively or sustainably impose or improve the environment. So that's basically what I was saying. So how can we use it all? <laughs> um, it's just imposing policies that are, that are imposing policies that are, that are ensure that every person has been taken care of. Who is the place of every person? How can we imp- uh, correctly place every person to a point that you are able to accommodate everyone in the law and in policy? So it's like yeah. um, a laws that look into the values of humans as opposed to the yes. values of profit. Yes. Thank you so much. Lovely yeah, to meet thank you. you. We'll thank talk. You. So my name is Mira. I'm 17 years old. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm from New York City. 
Currently, I'm in Glasgow for COP26 as a member of the Human Impacts Institute's Youth Advisory Council. I was also a former U.S. Youth Poet Laureate and UNA USA Ambassador for Life on Land. And you're 17. Yeah. You make me gosh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I don't even Thank know where you. to start. So. How, 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 where did you find that passion to kind of, you know, you must have had a lot of motivation to get to those places as well as I'm sure a lot of talent, but how did you, how did you find the drive, the motivation, the, the energy to? Yeah, I feel like when I was younger, I always knew that I wanted to help people. It wasn't that I wanted to act in terms of a certain issue. I didn't know or have the education that I have now in terms of learning about societal changes or infrastructures as they are in our countries and in the world. But I think that in terms of drive and in terms of finding myself, in terms of my passions, a lot of it stems from the communities. In New York, I'm part of the poetry community and um, being with other young people and listening to their voices is what inspired me to do what I do every single day. Because I feel like whenever I step on a stage, I never go on a stage alone or whatever platforms that I have, I bring people with me, I bring my neighborhoods with me. Um, and I think that a lot of leadership, we see the negotiations, we see our governments and corporate actors, but I feel like there's leadership within the smaller places of experiences. And I think that there is um, expertise in terms of lived experiences as well, because we see all of these facts and statistics, which are so important, especially in terms of climate change and the climate movement. But at the same time, there are people, there are human lives which are involved. And I think that Art has given me a way to express those lives, to express those individuals, and to show them that their voices matter and that representation matters. And um, yeah, I'm here now, and I love what I do. It's to almost to bring feeling to these stark facts, yeah. isn't it? Like stark facts can only get us into this state of panic, as opposed <laughs> to kind of feeling what's going on and then understanding that there is there are things that we can do mm -hmm. to actually make change. Yeah. So what are you doing around COP and how is it for you? <laughs> yeah, so as a part of the Human Impacts Institute, we were creating a Climate Crossroads exhibit, which has these posters of indigenous leaders from the global south and their voices. It encompasses their quotes and also portraits of them, which are created by other indigenous Afro-descendant um, individuals across the globe. So that's one thing that I've been doing with that organization. And we've been... Um, in COP looking at negotiations but also acting in different ways because I know that I was on a panel with three other young women from across the globe as well and to hear their experiences and how they not only dealt with climate change within their regions but also as individuals because I feel like this issue is so large it's macro but at the same time you have to think about the micro impacts um, and at the She Changes Climate Summit, I think to see women leaders have a place at the table and not just women, but young women, um, that was so powerful for me because I feel like we do need more representation because climate justice isn't just climate justice, but social justice, gender justice and racial justice. And I said that many, many times because we need to have these changes within how our society works in order to consolidate with climate change, to consolidate with these much larger issues as global citizens. Yeah, almost we need to find some kind of re-evaluation of our values and a balance to then yeah. be able to go forward with a new set of ideologies. <laughs> oh, so 
Sophie, thanks for having me. <laughs> Can you tell me your name and where you come from? My name is Kate Chambers. I am a trustee with the 2050 Climate Group. I'm from Clybank, just outside Glasgow. Um, so it's really exciting to be part of COP26 in my hometown. Totally, totally. Can only imagine. Um, can you tell me about your the 2050 team and what, what you're up to? So the 2050 Climate Group is a youth-led climate charity based in Scotland and we work with 18 to 35 year olds who are living and working in Scotland. We empower and equip them with the skills to take action on climate change in ways that are meaningful to them. So basically what we encourage is three different spheres of influence. So you've got your personal or community level of influence which basically means like not just what you're buying as a consumer, but also who you talk to, what community groups you're involved in, whether you're in a sports team, whether you're in a club, but like how could you bring climate change into all the stuff that you love? Um, and how could you have interesting conversations about climate action with the people you love, friends and family? Gardening. Gardening, yeah. So thinking about like, how could you get involved with a community garden? Is there stuff going on in your community? Is there space that could be used to do something for climate action? So just kind of making you think more about where you're from and how climate impacts your area and then what you could bring as a solution to your own life. So there's kind of that personal sphere. Then you've also got the professional sphere of influence. So what's really important to me is obviously the young people that we work with. It's kind of the stage in your life where you have the least agency and the least power. So you're probably the poorest that you are in your life. You're maybe just coming out of college or university. You might have a ton of debt. You're in an insecure job. You're trying to go on the housing market. All that good stuff that we have to deal with in our age group. Um, so you've got a lot of worries going on. And then you've also not got a lot of agency in your job. So it's kind of thinking about like if you're just in a new job or you feel like you don't have power within your job, how can you sort of influence the managers within whatever job you're in? So it can literally be anything, but you would look at your own workplace and think, okay, what here could change to be more climate friendly? What little policies could I try and implement within my own workplace? And then the last sphere of influence that we talk about is the political level, which is all so super important. So it's like, how do I get out there and make my voice heard? Um, how do I find the confidence to actually go and talk to my MP or my MSP? How do I get in the room with the right people to influence change? So for me, it's those three levels that you always have to be acting within like there's no use in just doing one it's like you have to be thinking about how climate change affects you on all those three different mm. levels i i want to like add points like and i completely resonate with and i think the discussion we were having earlier was about you know a lot of the time we have got this pressure to make change in our lives and mm. you know these kind of shell and the different energy companies that are all saying to us oh, oh your carbon footprint is x y or z mm -hmm. this does make it really daunting because the thought of entering the climate fight and then having to completely transfer like trans what's the term transform, transform your life, your life. Yeah. it's really really scary at the mm. beginning so actually just taking the onus off the carbon footprint itself mm -hmm. and just saying like 
even just engaging my parents in the climate fight might make them turn their lights off more or turn mm -hmm. their switches off more and just helping people to understand what they can do to make change is really important of course but then on the business level like you can it's not just a matter of persuading your bosses you can take a case of them and say I'm actually going to gain from this as mm -hmm. well and then on the policy level it's like just make sure you know who you're voting for and make sure that they're on a 1.5 mandate and let that be the driving force of your policy mm -hmm. and you can be of any spectrum of like policy side to still want the 1.5 degree change anyway yeah and i think it all comes back to values as well like you can think about everyone that you know within those different spheres of influence and what they care about so for example you mentioned your parents you could be like okay what is my parents like total value base what do they love what's important to them and then you just frame the climate argument around the things that they love um and you know bringing it back to things that are meaningful because I, I think what we have spoken about is that it can be very abstract like if you talk about numbers if you talk about 1.5 or two degrees people don't understand what that means to them whereas if you actually frame it as okay you know, the garden that you love, what if it was producing food for you? Or what if we were closer to our community and we had a really amazing community garden? Or, you know, there's all these exciting things. It doesn't have to always be um, something that you're giving up, but it can be like, have you thought about getting involved in something? But I totally agree again and again. But then also it's like, okay, look inside. Like what people are saying at the moment, it's like, we have lost touch with ourselves, let alone the greater world, right? So look inside. What are your hobbies? What do you like doing? Are you following any hobbies? If you're not, why are you not? Like, are you just wasting or spending too much time doing things that are not meaningful to you? If so, look inside again. Look inside. Figure out what you like. Figure out what you love. And then that will deeply connect with the environment straight away. 100%. So then you've got your, your knowledge bank of who you are. Mm -hmm. And then you move forward with that and help people to understand that sphere. Yeah. And just like on a example, like a really tangible example was, um, so my mum is really, really talented in making textiles, like making different clothes. But she works in a library in a school that's in like quite a disadvantaged area. So like a lot of the kids she's seen every day, they have no money, like they want nice clothes, but they're not going to go out and spend money on clothes. And we were chatting about climate stuff and she's obviously got so many skills, like sewing skills and amazing design skills. And then she spoke to the council and they were like, oh, we could give you 25 sewing machines in the school. So basically she started like a sewing club in the school. She's got all these young people who are making their own clothes. And she's just like, that has literally happened overnight because she was like, oh, hang on a minute. I've got an amazing skill set. I would love to do this at work. Like, do you know what I mean? She got to do that at work. And you're like, this is the kind of stuff. It's not about saying I'm an eco warrior. It's about like, what do you love? Do you like making stuff? Do you like being creative? How do you bring that into your life and make your life better and have a happier life yeah. whilst also doing something interesting? And like, I'm so inspiring to talk to you. But the other thing is um, the, the, the point right now equally is like we're in coming out of the crisis, right? There's not a lot of jobs. But have you seen how excited people are about the environment? Have you mm. seen the dial turning? Yes, we all know that the environment is high on most places agendas mm -hmm. so you're probably going to find a job more quickly if you're working in the environmental sector mm. than you're in in any other sector as well so 
maybe think about that too. Like what, how it applies what, yeah. to what you do and how you can sort of link the two as well. Yeah, yeah definitely. Mm. It was wonderful talking to you. Thanks Thank for coming you. on. Thanks, I'm Auntie Ivy. Um, I'm a global leader, teacher, ambassador. I just am here to lead by example. What these gatherings need to be accountable for is a space for healing to be held. How do I get refueled? Is for people to put action in place and what we know, our tools, is to come and sit by this yew tree, take your shoes off, say, please, I need five minutes to myself. If we don't do that, we'll get burnt out. And also what happens is even beautiful people like yourselves that are been in services, we need to stop and connect the boss, the mother earth. Mm. We need to go and get refueled by nature. Mm. If you're in the city, just go out and let the wind blow in your face. Take a breath in and out to and then go back inside. If you've got a glass of water, put a prayer and say, thank you water, please give me more energy from your intelligence. I mean, we're getting so hard. Thank you for the medicine of life. So when you drink that water, comes um, concentrated medicine. Mm. So these are little things that people are forgetting about what we already know. And we just have to be reminded, and that's where we all need to work together. Mm. Um, the medicine is within us, and we need to wake that up. And just remind ourselves to stop, to refuel, to take a breath in and out for ourselves. Next up, music and climate. We are talking to musicians across multiple disciplines to gather inspiration and ideas. Welcoming the inspirational Wayne Snow to our show today. Oh, so recording progress. So I said yes. Okay. Hello. Hello, hola. Hola, hola. ¿Qué tal? <laughs> uh, muy bien, you too? Yeah, so kind, something <laughs> like that. Muy cansada. <laughs> um, so thank you for joining us on a radio show that's coming out of COP. We um, are very happy to have you on board because we've been following your progress for a while and think that you're magical in the room and what you talk about and everything. And also you've just recently joined Earth Percent, which is an absolute dream for us to have you on board. So I'm going to give you the space to introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you're up to. Uh, yeah, I'm, um, let's say I'm a Nigerian uh, um, singer, songwriter. We've been living um, abroad for a while now. I lived in, in France uh, for uh, some years, <laughs> about 20 years or so. Uh, I had France, uh, Paris as my base, and I've moved, uh, I moved to Berlin about eight years ago. 
And uh, yeah, I just released my uh, my second LP, which is called uh, Figuring. And we are in uh, this uh, promotional phase and uh, also uh, live, uh, slowly building a live show around the, the, uh, the album. Amazing. Can you tell me a bit about the album and where you've got inspiration from and what it's about? Yes. Yeah, so the um, the album came to being slowly after my first album. So I did this one, um, uh, trying to uh, find a different uh, working um, like uh, uh, process uh, on um, on this one. So it was I was building it like uh, uh, slowly uh, with. Um, um, different uh, collaborators, uh, um, Berlin-based uh, producers. And uh, yeah, so this one started with this uh, question around this uh, like mask that we all wear. And uh, I, I was trying to find like a link between this mask, like traditional masks that you would find in all culture. And uh, so the link was uh, try to find something that is basically present in every cro- culture worldwide in order to have like a kind of a, a global conversation around this album and just have something very specific to where I'm based here in Berlin or Nigeria, uh, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, so that was actually the main drive in the album was to find a general uh, conversation. Um, and uh, naming the album afterwards, uh, figuring uh, sounded um, yeah something quite logical in our time uh, where we love uh, being surrounded by beautiful objects and even ourselves we tend to make ourselves very pretty in order to hide uh, the uh, struggling and uh, trouble whatever self we have inside so we're in this constant mask of happiness and I thought, uh, yeah, that would be a nice way to have this conversation because I think it's what's happening to us constantly now on the planet is that, yeah, when we present ourselves, we always say beautiful things, whether whereas it's uh, humans like uh, us, a person, or it could be uh, a more global uh, structure like a nation where you always show the good things. <laughs> Why are uh, you hiding the, the true, true, um, I mean, the worst, let's say, uh, and uh, yes, I thought, yeah, that would be a, a good way to have this uh, this conversation around this project, yeah. Yeah, I love it. I, it really, um, it's inspired me and it's actually something I've not really heard of over these, over these two weeks of COP. So I, I, I see the, I see what you're saying as being kind of the world that we're slowly deteriorating. Nature is, you know, biodiversity is, is being lost at such a fast, rapid rate and yet, the Anthropocene is the squeaky buildings, the new, the new HSBC banks, the branches that all look really shiny and like it's doing well. But actually what's underneath it is the nature that needs to grow and, you know, be let be left to live. And, and we're, we're covering it up with infrastructure and, and a facade, let's say. Yes, yes, exactly. Because I think whatever we're doing to nature, we're doing it to ourselves. And uh, what we see today is really part of us. So uh, I think the destruction, as you said, uh, that is happening to nature is just because we have this within us, this tendency mm-hmm. and to destroy things like that. And I think the um, we always say, what would be the solution? And I think the solution came last year, which was very strong. And I think uh, here in, uh, in Germany and in France was uh, the in March, 
when the, everything was just locked down and you had nothing but yourself, your dying self to speak to. And I think that was a, a, re a remarkable moment in uh, my generation, at least, to see that, yeah, we were facing something very strong that you can't really fake it. Um, it is just happening in front of you. And at that very moment, it was incredible to see like how everything was standing still. Mother Nature was powerful. And we were just like, we felt how <laughs> little we were. And I think um, that was one of the moments where we had to make a proper decision as to are we going to continue treating ourselves like this? Therefore, Mother Nature like that? Or what should we do? And if we, we, ha we have to left, I mean, do we have to leave uh, those structures like nations or whatever organizations that we decide to decide for these things? Or are we to maybe try to deal with these issues ourselves. So I think it's a personal journey. Like each one of us has to learn how to, you know, love that self, that person you see there, the true one, not the one you hide. And uh, we have to find ways to get to that person, you see. And, uh, but I saw some very nice examples when I was in France, so we were locked up in the uh, south of France, uh, uh, near Toulouse. And, uh, you know, most people were like, uh, you know, you didn't have the choice, you had to eat things from your garden or eat things from produced in the, in the region. And uh, so it brought you really closer to, to Mother Earth because you know that you had to treat the soil better, you know, in order to produce. So I felt like there was a better conversation at that very moment with Earth and also with yourself because I think you started trying to feed yourself better, wash your hands, take care of this, you know, that's the thing. Like uh, all this organization, maybe they should be more concerned not about shutting down all this industry or whatever. I think it's important, of course, to shut them down, but to find a way to make things easier for each one of us. Like poverty, help people, help them find a way to find themselves and uh, feed themselves, eat properly, speak properly to one another. And then from there on, maybe we will grow something better. Because I just, just don't see. Yeah, like um, realigning values on all levels. And I think that's that has come out of COP, if I'm honest, in all of the fringe events and all of the people I'm talking to and the protesters I'm talking to and anyone mm -hmm. I'm talking to is like the way to solve the problem is to look inside, for us to look inside and for businesses to look inside and really reassess the values so that then going forward, we're building a better place that is aligned with people and the planet as opposed to money and GDP. And as you yeah. were saying in this, this lockdown, there was, you know, it was very, very rapid that nature was able to, you know, re-biodiverse in a way. There were, you know, you saw, you saw fish and dolphins in the Venice Canal that you hadn't seen for, for decades and yeah. so much nature around you in the garden and that the attachment that we all had to nature because the one thing we were, were allowed to do was you know going for a walk so you really mm -hmm. choose to go out and, and connect with nature as opposed to turning on I don't know uh, going to a pub or turning on the tv mm -hmm. and watching whatever festivals going on or stuff so it was mm -hmm. really um definitely a value shift and then also bringing people together for all of the different justice movements there's mm -hmm. so many justice movements that came together and actually were heard and people started to really understand global justice and and all of the different types of justice that happened. So I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. And I really love the way you put it.
that's the the question that I'm constantly asking myself. Just like, what do you do? And I know that uh, as an artist, um, I'm I'm concerned into um, speaking uh, of words of uh, love, of connection, like well-being, how we just you know treat each other in a peaceful, lovely way. But at the same time, I know that yeah, we are limited. We don't have all the capacity, and uh, we're not in the system. We don't make rules. And, uh, and uh, what shall we do to this politician and shall we give them more power than they have already? And that's also what I'm just uh, thinking. And also as an African, shall we constantly leave the Western countries to just dictate that uh, because the, the, the global warming or whatever it is, is coming from the Western world. It's not an African issue. And uh, where I'm born, uh, my hometown is destroyed by shell which is the Western countries. And also if we talk about decolonization or whatever. So yeah, it's not, we're not in problem in Africa, but we want to have our share, like also like we have to deal with this issue as well because it's a, it's, a, it's a world problem. So we have to be able to find our own way to discuss, to talk about this thing, rather than those there telling us you have to do this, you know, that won't work at all for anyone. The difficulty is that, you know, there's these big global governments and ministers coming together to discuss the, how we fix the solutions. And, for example, there's a lot of conversation on loss and damage now, but no money is being put on the table. Loss and damage, as you say, you, your village is literally being destroyed. And this is the case in so many places all around the world. And just because we're in the West, we're, you know, we're experiencing a few different climate floods or you know like and obviously it's difficult for some people and like I feel bad for anybody going through loss and damage but essentially everybody is but not to the degree that you have lost your village and that isn't on the front forefront of the table at these negotiations it's just it feels infuriating and it's not okay and these kind of stories need to be told to everybody for them to realize that it is the climate crisis is now and it's colossal it is killing it, people. It, it is like it is villages, lives, communities, biodiversity, nature, everything that's good in the world, heritage, culture. Exactly, exactly. It's 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 really really damaging everything. You know, we we yeah we we've grown up with and um, but uh, again, it's just uh, who is having the conversation and who has the wealth. <laughs> to you know always speak louder than the others that's the that's the issue mm. of uh, 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 this this whole thing and uh, I would like them you know at uh, COP26 to call people from my village the elderly ones and just uh, let them speak and then when they're done speaking let them be actions you know because uh, yeah they need to clean up this all this little mess and all this reparation, we need this to be done. And these are like little things, you know, that, but I think when when these are done, it it helps the, uh, I think it's the more the body, as I told you, like, you know, and this is the natural healing. And when these people are healed, maybe they will do better rather than, you know, like having these big, big structures and you give them money to go whatever, you know, sense. this is a bullshit, bullshit. I think what the people who need the most help are those in the Amazon forest for small, tiny places, you know, no one likes to go to. Small, small, small places, parts then rather than big, big, big 
where 80 percent of the biodiversity actually exists <laughs> um yeah. now i'm going to leave with my final question and it is mm -hmm. if there's one thing that you could say to people that are just beginning to engage in the climate fight what would you give them as a first action to begin their engagement uh i i would tell them that i actually am new to this so-called climate fight but uh, you can be new to something that is vital to your existence. So your curiosity is not like you're responsible as a human being, as someone who lives on this planet, you're responsible for it. If it goes away during your lifetime, well, you go away as well, but you are responsible for, for it. So it means that you have to just do what you have to do to preserve this. Yeah, it's your responsibility. So you don't have to wait for uh, any organization to tell you what to do. Just be curious, uh, read whatever you can, and also, yeah, do your best to 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 deal with this, and also find ways to get better <laughs> if you can. And yeah. if you feel better, maybe you feel better in helping others and helping this health. But yeah, it's just open yourself up to this question and yeah, do it. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much. No pleasure. Introducing Brian Eno in conversation with Susan Nakyung Lee from Global Assembly. Wonderful to meet you both, or see you again, Brian, and meet you. My name is Sophie, and we are hosting a daily radio broadcast from the heart of the Pivotal Climate Summit, COP26. Mm -hmm. And we thought that you would be really interesting to talk to. So. First of all, I would like you both to introduce yourselves and tell us a tiny little bit about what you do and then we'll jump into it a bit further down the line. Thanks, my name is Susan. I'm from Seoul originally, um, but working with a crew based sort of around planet Earth really um, on a project called the Global Assembly. And what we're doing is bringing together a snapshot of the global population everyday people not selected by election or self-selection, but by lottery, um, and having them deliberate and learn from experts and most importantly, each other on how we plot our way forward as humanity. Um, and we're very excited to be our cop to share a bit about ourselves. Well, congratulations. And I'm Brian Inu, I'm a musician who's been interested in climate change for quite a long time, but particularly interested in large-scale social movements, how they come into being and how they can be effective. And uh, I suppose one of the reasons I'm interested in doing this is because I want to try to reframe the climate emergency as a sort of civilizational opportunity to rethink the way we're doing things and the kinds of values that we have both um, political and uh, meta and, and mega. <laughs> um, amazing. So I would just, could you explain a bit about the Global Assembly and, and how one gets selected to be part of that? Yeah, I think it's quite in line with what you've been saying, Brian, about the need for a value shift. Mm -hmm. And it's about what kinds of faces do you imagine when you think of a policymaker Right. Is it can it be a girl from South Korea or a dressmaker from Brazil or does it have to be, you know, pale, frail men in suits? Um, and it's about flipping that notion completely in and of itself. Um, so when we think of policymakers, we usually think about 
um, elections, right? Two people in a sort of um, dramatized fight against each other um, of, you know, who's right and who's wrong. But I think the Global Assembly is about upending, upending that. Um, and the way we select our members is a process that began in June of this year. Um, and we ran a computer program to drop 100 pins on Earth. And it was this 2D map with 100 red pins on it that became 3D through a process of finding local community organizations within a 300 kilometer radius. Um, and those sort of unusual suspects, we're talking about students in Korea, we're talking about a sports club in Brazil, um, a co-working space in N'Djamena and Chad, um, those unusual suspects going on the street or door knocking to randomly recruit members. Um, and it's those sort of everyday people who are gifting themselves to be able to deliberate and learn with each other and um, work alongside policymakers as their colleagues really plot the way forward. It's actually quite an old idea, this notion of uh, randomly choosing representatives. It's, it was called sortition, and the ancient Greeks did it. In fact, it was the basis of uh, ancient Greek government for quite a long time. So it's not something we just came up with. It worked for a long time. That's, that's impressive. I wonder, so how, have you got any deeper examples of how that worked in, in Greece uh, or in ancient Greece? I don't have any specific examples, but I know that it worked for, um, you know, what we call ancient Greece probably lasted 200 years or so. And I think for a good half of that, they were using sortition processes. So it's it's very interesting because it's not intuitive to us at all that yeah. you could randomly choose people and they would actually turn out to be good representatives. Yeah. In fact, it works very, very well. So do the representatives have um, a big support system whereby they're kind of trained to mm. understand what it means to be a representative and I suppose potentially even psychologically they probably need a bit of support there as well. Yeah, so we think about our assembly members not as representing perhaps their nation states, um, and I think those are the fault lines that we're used to operating with, but really representing their own lived experiences. Um, but that does, of course, means doesn't mean that they don't have supports. I think the support of each of the 100 assembly members really starts in their local community. So even before they join the first Zoom session, um, many of them, the information materials they read to learn about the climate and ecological crisis are a product of community-based events in their village, in their city, um, where their fellow sort of neighbors sat together in a circle and read through the information materials and their translation to make sure they were contextualized, to make sure they were eye level. Um, and so it takes a village and that's where it starts before they even become connected to others at the global level. And so how do they... How is the village educated, if you like? How, how do you actually do that? Yep, so it starts from first finding viewpoints from across the board. So we know that the assembly members, once they convene, are of course bringing a richness and plurality of their own experiences. Um, but it starts from who moderates the, the people who decide what's put on the page. Yeah. Um, and we knew from the beginning that our core team couldn't be those people curating the kinds of knowledges that we would feed into the assembly. Um, so what we've done is formed a steering committee called the Knowledge and Wisdom Committee. Um, and I think the key word really is the addition of wisdom to that list. Um, and it consists of scientists and indigenous wisdom keepers from around the world who already even before the assembly members come in, 
start doing that work of, I guess, fancy way of putting it would be epistemic justice, mm -hmm. of yeah. beginning to broaden the, the horizon of different knowledges that we input uh, and then gift to this group that is a snapshot of humanity to have them start deliberating. Yes. And who's been paying for it so far? We have, I think this year has been a practice in doing a resource-poor, resource vision-rich project. Um, our funders include the Scottish government, who of course um, ran their citizens' assembly at the national level, yes. and therefore were interested in how it would look like scaled up to a global level, um, as well as European Climate Foundation um, and a few other philanthropic orgs. Mm -hmm. um, our hope is that going forward, a bulk of our funding comes from individual giving so that it becomes an authentically sort of citizen-owned project um, where the citizens are initiating their own infrastructure that is mm -hmm. truly theirs um, to hold and use mm -hmm. as they please. And when you, um, when you learn, when you get outputs from this, how do you present those to governments, for instance, mm -hmm. who, yeah. who actually hold the power? And, and how receptive are governments to this, do you think? Mm. I think the, the first part of your question is how do you even generate, right? With yes. 30, with people speaking 30 different languages, what does that co-production process look like? Um, and I think this speaks to the question of how do we intend to speak together and how do we intend to co-create together? Um, and at a meta level, the process of the Global Assembly had to reflect the values of inclusion, of co-creation, of collective intelligence. Um, and so essentially what we've done is we have 20 breakout rooms, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays, and it starts at 5 a.m. UTC, and they run asynchronously until 5 p.m. UTC. And you see on this big spreadsheet that being populated as 20 asynchronous breakout rooms located all across the UTC time zone deliberate on the same questions. Mm -hmm. um, and at the end of the day, what happens is a group of five editors consolidate these comments together. Mm -hmm. So after the generation is the consolidation and the assembly members continue to comment in on those consolidations, which in a way are those 20 breakout rooms speaking to each other yes, um, and continue to iterate their declaration. Um, and do they, does the conversation continue from session to session or are, are there new breakout rooms with new new inhabitants, as it were. Yeah, so the biggest question from us, and I think often the questions we were asking ourselves, because this is an unprecedented um, project, were often quite unglamorous. It was questions like, when are the assembly members going to meet? How are they going to speak to each other when they speak different languages? They're located across time zones. Um, so these asynchronous breakout rooms are groups of five assembly members in the same six-hour longitudinal time zone. Yes. And they meet throughout the week. Um, and then on weekends, we've had to calculate what is the most equitable three-hour window for everyone across the world to meet. Um, and what that turns out to be? to be 12 to 3 p.m. UTC. Okay. Um, and where I'm based in Korea, we're at the very extreme of the time zone. So I was working with these folks on the most equitable time. But for me in Korea, that runs up until midnight. Yeah. Um, and for our friends in the Pacific Northwest in the States, that's 4 a.m. Um, and in this three-hour window where everyone, of course, is making their personal sacrifices to be there is when we can actually mix those breakout rooms and have even more multilingual groups, sort of fractals, deliberating with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. And I know you plan to scale this up. Yeah. It's, it's intended to be a thousand people next, isn't it? In the that next is version. Right. 
How big, how big do you think it could get and still be workable? I think the core assembly could really continue scaling. Our hope is to begin with the next step of 300 and then end up in 1,000. Mm. Um, but I do think the scaling element of the global assembly could come in the community assemblies. Mm. Um, so what I've been talking about is the sort of heart of the model, which is a scaling up of the citizens assembly model. But in parallel to that, anyone around the world can initiate their own community event that uses the same information materials as the core, that uses the same process, and allows them to follow along this journey. Um, and there's a public education piece to it, sort of pockets around the world following on the same learning journey um, and being involved in a conversation that's locally hosted, but of course, globally connected. Mm -hmm. And I think those community assemblies is where the scale could come in in the project. Can I ask something? Can I ask what you're doing um, in linked to COP and linked to the environment in general? Mm -hmm. So our assembly members are presenting their declarations. Um, they've presented the first iteration of their declaration on November 1st. Mm -hmm. um, but in most citizens assembly models, there's a political mandate from the top down. You know, organize a citizens assembly. They'll provide us outputs. Um, that's kind of it. But I think a key departure for us is one, you know, there is no global superpower to tell us organize a citizens assembly. Mm. This is a claim space. No one told us to do it. We've just done it. Yeah. Um, and the second departure is the assembly members aren't just dumping their recommendations at COP and saying, do with it what you will. Mm -hmm. um, rather, they're observing the COP process, each committing to observe eight hours of it across their different time zones, um, learn from the process, but also evaluate it. You know, are the conversations they're observing at this global conference that's being slated as our last hope actually aligned and meeting their declaration and their deliberations? Can I ask what the demands were? What the demands actually were that came out of the assemblies? Yeah, there was a reaffirmation of the Paris Agreement, mm -hmm. um, but I think a key underlying thread behind their declarations was a focus on fairness and justice, um, with a focus also on restorative justice. Um, so richer countries being able to look back at their historical emissions and um, acting in a way that is commensurate to that. And I think those kinds of brazen declarations around restorative justice, around ecocide, around fairness and how we move forward around climate justice can only be broached when you have a group talking about it that reflects the plurality we need to broach those conversations. Mm, yeah. um, so a key learning for, for us in this project is if you don't want to have a global north global process, don't have a global north global process. Mm. Decentralize as much as you can, localize as much as you can, and you will be able to bridge those trade-offs. Huge, huge thanks to today's contributors, Judy, Marithi, Global Witness, Mira, Dasgupta, Born from Spices, Wayne Snow, Auntie Ivy, Brian Eno, Susan Nakyungmi, Global Assembly. Thank you.